0: Welcome to the Become a Writer Today podcast with Brian Collins. Here you'll find practical advice and interviews for all kinds of writers.
1: Hi there, this is Brian Collins and welcome to the Become a Writer Today podcast. And in this episode, I've caught up with an author that I have admired for some time, Michael Gelb. He's a creativity expert and the author of more than a dozen books, including How to Think Like Leonardo da Vinci. But before I get into the interview, here's a quick personal update. As I'm recording this podcast episode, the kids are getting ready to go back to school, which will mean a change in routine. What do I mean by a change in routine? Well, during the summer, I like to get up around six and work for two or two and a half hours on a writing or creative project. And then I'd move on with the day or with some other copywriting work that would pay the bills. However, when the kids go back to school, it also means my wife will be going back to work as our baby is now 11 months. So that would mean I'll be getting the kids out the door for school. So to ensure that I'll still have time to write, what I'll be doing is getting up just that bit earlier. The other thing that I'm doing, which I've talked about in another episode, is training for the Dublin City Marathon. And the reason why I'm talking about that is side pursuits like running and so on can really inform the creative process. And I've actually used running stories and anecdotes and stories from other activities and side pursuits in some of my articles and nonfiction work. And this is a great way of building a relationship with your readers when you share something about yourself or something about your personal life in your work. Because although it may appear every day to you, it's not to your reader. And that's actually something that this week's interviewee talks about uh, at the end of the interview. Michael Galb has lots of different side pursuits, including Tai Chi. But his latest book is actually called The Healing Organization. Awakening the Conscience of Business." to help save the world and it's a bit of a departure for Michael so at the start of the interview I asked him why he decided to write a book that's altogether different from some of his typical works about creativity and we also cover things like why every creative and business owner should give something back how you can think like Leonardo da Vinci where he gets his ideas for his books How to Unlock Fresh Creative Thinking, so that's the idea of tapping into your side pursuits that I talked about at the start of the introduction, and also how his writing routine has evolved. But before we get into all of that, I asked Michael to tell me a little bit more about his latest book, The Healing Organization.
0: (laughs) Well, it's an evolution, but it's also the context and the framework in which I've actually written all my books and done all of my work. So many, many years ago, I moved to Washington, D.C. because I thought it was the place where creativity and innovation might have the most influence in the world. (laughs) And unfortunately, I discovered that politicians, people in government, weren't particularly interested in creativity or innovation. And I was also disappointed to discover that Educators weren't all that interested because they were in a system that was just so bureaucratic. It was really impossible for many of them to focus on change, learning, creativity, innovation. They just had to get through the curriculum, which was dictated to them largely by the politicians. So in those days, I started offering public seminars in what I called high performance learning, and that included creative thinking memory development, mind mapping, speed reading. It was a total personal evolution, know the brain, know the mind, figure out how to improve it seminar. And politicians didn't come, educators, a few of them came, but businesses loved them. And we had waiting lists. And I was amazed to discover that businesses were most interested in this phenomenon of developing human potential, creativity, and of course, innovation. It made sense because they had some real metric of that they kept track of, <laughs> cold profit. <laughs> yep. They really cared about learning and growth and, and change. And of course, I have to tell you, I met the people who were most focused on a kind of humanistic human potential orientation. Those are the people who hired me. Those are the people who hired me throughout my career. But it was great. I, I realized that, okay, business is going to be the way that we can make a difference in the world. If we can get businesses to be more creative, more compassionate, more awake, that's the greatest point of leverage for helping the world. So years went by. And in the 90s, mid to late 90s, I got invited to teach at George Mason University Business School in Virginia at their executive MBA program. And the director of the executive MBA program is a gentleman named Raj Sasodia. And Raj was a great guy. He sponsored I, we seven or eight of my three-day seminars. They were always packed out. I think sat through each one. We became friends, stayed in touch. And then, I don't know, maybe seven, eight, nine years later, he sent me the draft Manuscript of a book he had written called Firms of Endearment. And I just was mesmerized by this book because what Raj had done with some of his colleagues was to create the business school case study as to why companies that treat all their stakeholders with fairness and caring, companies that have a higher purpose, that build conscious cultures, that support conscious leadership that have the stakeholder welfare orientation, those companies are profitable. So Raj and his colleagues really presented the data and the business case to support this notion that I always had, that I thought was kind of a romantic, almost quixotic notion that businesses that cared for others would do better and would be the key point of leverage to help save the world. So Raj wrote that book and catalyzed the whole movement called Conscious Capitalism, uh, which now has 56 chapters around the world. And in 2009, he invited me to be the Master of Ceremonies for the Conscious Capitalism CEO Conference. And I then keynoted a number of the Conscious Capitalism conferences. And then I was Master of Ceremonies for another conference where I uh, I was actually giving the closing keynote. And Raj came to introduce me. And In the introduction, he said something that I didn't know about until the moment of that introduction. He said that way back in the late 90s when he attended my seminar, it was in the seminar that he realized that he could be creative, that he could express himself outside of just being a business school professor. And it's part of what inspired him to write the book, Firms of Endearment, that had inspired this whole movement and had contextualized for me everything that I had figured out intuitively. So when he said this, I went up to him afterwards, we laughed about it, we said, "You know, we need to write a book together. So over the years, since then, we've explored, what do we wanna say? What's the message? And it just evolved naturally. The message is that... We're at a time where the way we have operated business, the way capitalism has functioned it is no longer sustainable. Now, that doesn't mean that the problem is people say, okay, well, let's go to socialism. And we know, unfortunately, that just doesn't work. So you have these two extremes of unfettered, exploitive capitalism, which we see tragically destroying much of the planet and making many lives miserable. But the upside of of even unconscious capitalism is that in the last 200 years, hundreds of millions of people have been lifted out of poverty. We've ameliorated so many global issues and problems through the emergence of capitalism. It's actually maybe the greatest idea people have ever come up with. It's just that what got us here is not going to get us through the next 200 years. It's time for a rebalancing, for a shifting. And that shifting, the good news of that shift is that it's it's in the original ideals of capitalism. Adam Smith wrote the famous book that everybody knows about called The Wealth of Nations. And that's the Bible of many who propose unfettered capitalism. But they forget that Adam Smith also wrote the theory of moral sentiments, in which he said that capitalism has to be grounded first in concern for human welfare. So since we now know, and we have, we have lots of data to back up the idea that if you marry the theory of moral sentiments, if you put human welfare first in the way you run your enterprise, that that enterprise will be more successful, why would you ever consider doing anything else? So we're at this inflection point. And part of the idea of the book, part of the idea of the title, The Healing Organization, it suggests that the purpose of business, if you ask most people today, what's the purpose of business, they'll still say, oh, to make money. But that is not the purpose of business. It's actually absurd. If I asked you what's the purpose of your life, you wouldn't say it's to make red blood cells. Now, you have to make red blood cells in order to survive, but that's not the purpose of your life. And you need to make money. You have to make profit to have a a business that functions. But it's absurd to say that making money is the purpose of business. No, we say the purpose of business is to alleviate suffering and elevate joy. Alleviate suffering and elevate joy. And when people awaken their conscience, because a lot of people just aren't aware that business can have this higher purpose and needs to have this higher purpose. But when they wake up to the notion of, yes, well, of course, of course. And you start telling them stories You help them read stories, which obviously our book is packed with these stories of companies where usually a senior person, oftentimes a CEO, had an awakening of conscience and changed the whole focus of the organization. And story after story, it's so moving. uh, I can't wait for people to read these stories because they touch the heart and they inspire a sense of hope and possibility.
1: I'm wondering if you could give an example of a a leader who is... Achieving what you've set out in the book.
0: Sure. No, we. I, I've got twenty-five of them in the book. <laughs> and those are just the ones that made the cut. But I'll give you. I'll give you an example. We start. The book starts with the story of Jaipur rugs, and the rug and carpet industry in India for many many years was focused on the exploitation of women from the lowest caste. So these women's really functioned as nothing more than indentured slaves. They were frequently exploited by the higher caste middlemen who controlled the contracts with the end user customers. They were often not paid or cheated on their contracts and treated terribly. Well, along comes a gentleman, Mr. Chowdhury, and he sees this and he says, we've got to change this whole business model. So he eliminates... The middlemen, and he treats the women, even though he's from a higher caste, he says this caste idea is, has to be cast aside. He says we have to treat these women with dignity and respect and give them opportunity. So he starts making deals with them and paying them on time and helping. He creates a foundation and gets them educated, gets their families educated. He's taken 40,000 women out of extreme poverty. But here's the best part. I mean for these women have become artisans. They sign their rugs. They're part of the design of the rugs. People come from all over the world to visit Jaipur rugs because they want to see this miracle. The rugs are exquisite and they're signed by the women so the women have this the sense of ownership and connection and pride and empowerment. Uh, we we talked to one woman who she has six children. Five of them are have either been to college or are in college or getting ready to go to college, which was utterly unthinkable. She's learned to speak English. She has a beautiful bearing. Her eyes are glowing, big smile. 20 years ago, she would have been shrouded and hunched over, not knowing a word of English, living in poverty, and her kids would definitely not be going to college. And it's because this one man, Kishore Shaudri, they call him the Gandhi of the carpet industry, awakened his conscience, changed the business model. And this company is way, way, way more profitable than its competitors who still run the old model. Because people wanted... People, you know, humanity, people are looking for this. People are hungry for this around the world when the power of capitalism and the power of business can be aligned with the power of goodness and conscience and human dignity... It's an idea whose time has come. And we start the book with the story of Jaipur rugs because we figure if this can be done in rural India, where there's the caste system and where there was extreme poverty, what might be possible in Ireland or England or the United States or in, in Australia or Latin America, or all over the world? So, this is a global movement. And Jaipur is our first of, of many stories in the book that will touch your heart and inspire your sense of what's possible. How can a leader implement the pivots that you've described in the book? Ah, well, that's... <laughs> so the book is, is set up, so there's, there's three parts to it. The first part, we explain the whole evolution of capitalism to where it is today and why it has to change, why it has to go back to its true origins and its, its higher purpose. Then there's the stories, which go right to the heart and get people. I mean, I'm the author of this book, co-author of this book. I read the stories and it brings tears to my eyes because it's so moving. And that's the effect it's having on on our readers thus far. But then, yeah, you ask the question, it all begs the question, okay, how do I begin to do this? And that's what part three is about. And we've tried, I mean, there are many books on conscious capitalism now. This is a growing movement. So we try to capture some of what's really distinctive about these We call them healing organizations, and and what's the difference between conscious capitalism and healing organization? It's going from just the idea of making things as they are sustainable. You know, a a lot of people talk about sustainability. I don't know why, but sustainability doesn't really turn me on. It's like, okay, we get to survive. (laughs) Um, You know, it's not quite good enough. We need regenerative capitalism, and that's what the healing organization. Is about. So we help in this chapter. We focus on how do you create a higher purpose for your business? How do you shift your conscience and consciousness and reorient yourself in this way? And we actually have created the healing oath, which we're actually aiming to get. And we're, this is starting to happen. It's happening by itself. We don't, I say, aiming to get. We don't have to even do it. People are coming forth everywhere to do this. And that is to take this oath. And this is really the first step is to really shift your mind, shift your heart, shift your intention, and align with this idea of the healing organization. So, should I share with you the healing oath? Please do. Okay. I'll read, I'll read you this. This is this is the last paragraph of the book. We see this book as part of a movement to change the world of business and make it about love and healing instead of fear and survival. If you'd like to be part of this movement, Begin by taking the healing organization oath. Place your left hand on your heart and raise your right hand and proclaim. Primum non nocere. That's Latin for first do no harm. I will operate my business in a way that causes no harm to others or to the earth. Malus eradicare. Root out evil. I will never enable or collude with abuse or exploitation. I will be an everyday hero who stands up for fairness, truth, beauty, integrity, and basic goodness. Amor vincit omnia, love conquers all. I will operate from love, I will measure success by the fulfillment, abundance, and joy I generate for others. And there's something you're powerful, you take an oath, and we're not kidding, it's like, really? Uh, stand up, put it on video, we're going to put it on LinkedIn. We're going to put it on our healing organization's website and be part of this movement. And then, of course, you need, yes, you do need, how do I actually implement this? How do I actually apply this? And that's where Raj's book on conscious capitalism gives you a lot of the playbook on how to do it. And all my books, this is a question you asked me before, all my books, everything I've written, the 15 books I've written before this are all part of the leadership development curriculum that we need in order to be a healing leader. So you're going to need to be creative and think like Leonardo da Vinci. You're going to need to be innovative and apply the innovative strategies of Thomas Edison. You're going to need the art of connection, the seven relationship building skills that every leader needs now. So this new book is not a departure. It's the framework. It's the context for my entire life's work, which always had this purpose, but now I'm finally articulating it and I'm thrilled to do it with my co-author, Raj Sasodia.
1: Sounds like a great book. Did you find it difficult to write compared to previous books? Because this sounds like a a bigger book, so to speak, at least in terms of the, the big idea or concept.
0: Well, that's a wonderful question. Thank you for asking it because actually this was the easiest, most fun, most inspiring thing I've ever done. And everything I do is inspiring and fun. <laughs> so I'll tell you the story. So Raj and I, we developed this over years and years and years, and it just naturally came together. And the funny thing is we had a few earlier ideas that were rejected by publishers, and we just kept having this dialogue going. And then this idea, just it just emerged. And this is what I teach people about the creative process is learn from things that don't seem to work and can stay engaged in the process and keep iterating and exploring, and then allow for ideas to emerge. And you'll recognize when there's one that has more energy and more life. And this was that idea. So then we developed the idea and we created a mind map of the overall book. We then conducted, I don't know, I think we conducted 60 or 70 interviews with CEOs and various leaders and authors and thought leaders around the world and then we read all our own interviews and we looked at which ones would fit most with the theme. And then we we're getting ready. We, so we found a, a publisher who was very enthusiastic. We signed a contract and we set a date to hand in the manuscript. And then Raj came to me and said, I have to do some work on my own inner healing before I'm part of a book called The Healing Organization. And it was fascinating because he shared with me how his own lineage in India was he had ancestors who were part of a kind of patriarchal and sometimes exploitive caste system. And he felt that he had to work through that karma in his own being before he really became a global champion of the healing organization. So he said to me, I, he planned a series of retreats, including a journey to the rainforest with shamans and a silent uh, meditation retreat, all this stuff. He said, so it means putting off the deadline for our book by four months. And I had set aside the whole summer to work on the on the book, but I knew it was right. And I said, go, man, go. And I just said, let me just go to the publisher, see if they'll give us a four-month extension, which they did. So Raj goes off for four months and comes back. So we started meeting every couple of weeks. He would just come usually to my house and we'd spend the weekend and we'd just have this dialogue and we would record it. Then we'd give it to his graduate student. Thank God he has graduate students who could record, you know, who could transcribe all this stuff. And then they'd send it back to us and it wrote itself. It just was so natural and easy. And I, I got to tell you, I was... The day we sent in the final, final manuscript, I felt sad because I, I just... Had so much fun being part of the process of writing. Of course, now I'm excited about the process of sharing the gospel. That's a little bit about how it emerged and just how joyful the whole thing was.
1: Was that a different process to previous books, like the Da Vinci book or Edison book that you mentioned?
0: Well, the Da Vinci book was a similarly amazing process because Leonardo was my childhood hero. And it gave me the opportunity to literally go to the place he was born, the place he, would, he died, walk in his footsteps, visit the great museums of the world, read his notebooks over and over again, interview the great da Vinci scholars. So it was a dream project project. And that book, you know, it's twenty one years later. That book's still a bestseller. It's in twenty five languages. So Da Vinci's you know this is the five hundred year anniversary of the life of Leonardo da Vinci, interest in how to think like Leonardo da Vinci's as is just growing. So That was a a spectacular experience. And the Edison book came because I wrote the Da Vinci book and Thomas Edison's great, great, great grandniece called me up and said, I'm a big fan of your Da Vinci book. I'm Edison's great, great, great grandniece. She told me she was an MBA from Dartmouth. So I got this idea about writing a book with her, which also happened in a wonderful partnership, very creative, seamless collaboration with Sarah Miller Caldecott. That's the most wonderful woman. So yes, that's how Innovate Like Edison happened. So why do things tend to work out like this? In all the books I've written, because I actually apply what I'm writing about, (laughs) you know what? Thank God, right? Because if I didn't, first of all, I shouldn't be writing these books, and it wouldn't be so effortless and and joyous and filled with uh, creativity. But it's you know I really apply what's in the Da Vinci book, what's in the Edison book, what's in the Healing Organization, and all my other books. This is how I live, so it it all happens kind of naturally.
1: All your other fifteen books, would you describe yourself as a, a prolific author?
0: Well, that's for other people to describe me i you know I describe myself as a curious, passionate, continuous learner, and I find one of the best ways to learn about something is to write about it because until you really write, you know it's one thing to speak about if you're a good speaker, if you're you know if you're charming, if you have a good sense of humor, you can get away with saying a lot of things that don't really make sense and win people over anyway. <laughs> but it's much harder to do with writing because you read it on the page and then you read it. It's still on the page and we can go back and read it again. and We can say, hmm, that doesn't actually make sense. <laughs> so I like to tell people, you know, you don't know what you really think until you write it out. Writing is a test of the clarity of your thinking. That's why it's so, on the one hand, so challenging, but on the other hand, such a wonderful process if you're interested in clarifying your thinking, write. That's a, that's a the bold
1: statement. How often do you spend writing? I mean, I, I gather you're preparing for a book launch at the moment, but h- how much of your day does writing form?
0: Well, I'd like to tell you that I have an exact plan for every day, but it's not really, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> uh, I mean, I make a mind map every day. I do make a plan every day and I have a, a mind map of the year's goals and the life goals but I also allow room for spontaneity and and flow in the course of the day having said that I am writing a new book which is due on October 1st so I'm writing another book while I'm getting ready to launch the healing organization and I'm also working on a script for a video program about how to think like Leonardo da Vinci so I'm doing a lot of writing at the moment <laughs> But uh, I love it. I love it. And mind mapping makes a huge difference. If learning how to mind map, which I teach people and how to think like Leonardo da Vinci... Do you mind map out with software or pen and paper? Oh, no, no. Pen and paper. Software doesn't do it for me. It's good for sharing the mind map, but our challenge to draw your own image and do it by hand, my experience is it awakens more flowing and creative and unexpected connections in one's mind. So I call it artisanal mind mapping, the old-fashioned way with colored pens and a big sheet of paper. So I've got colored pens everywhere at my desk. I've got art paper. I have a a whiteboard just to my left here with a big mind map about the marketing and promotion plan for the healing organization. So I'm an advocate of artisanal mind mapping.
1: Mm, I like that. And you, I know you described some activities that you pursue every day. Do you have an ideal early morning routine?
0: Well, the truth is, you know, I, I mean, I, I get up, I go, I make some artisanal coffee <laughs> 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 and have breakfast and I go, I go right to work because I'm just raring to go. I don't need to do anything. I don't need to meditate. I don't need to do any practices or anything to get myself geared up. I just can't wait to get in here and get to work. And then I work, I get in the flow state most days. And, you know, before I know it, it's three o'clock, three thirty. And that's when I do then I start doing practices. I do Tai Chi and Qigong every day. I go for a walk. We live right next to a beautiful woodland. So yeah. I go for a walk for an hour in the woods, which is kind of a walking meditation. And then I also go to boxing class because I like to get some really serious exercise. And I come back to a little more tai chi or qigong to settle everything down. I cook some fabulous dinner and drink one of the great wines of the world with my wife and then uh, I usually watch comedy or the stories of great geniuses or spiritual masters or interesting intellectual topics on some channel somewhere uh, or comedy I love comedy then meditate go to sleep get up do this you know that that's if there's a routine that's it yeah That sounds like a good day. I I noticed you were a black belt in Aikido as well. Do you still practice that sport? Yes, I'm a fifth degree black belt in Aikido and I teach from time to time. But about 12 years ago, I decided that I... I mean, I love Aikido. I was doing more teaching than learning. And since I teach and speak for a living, I wanted my, my practice to be... I like the idea of beginner's mind. I like the idea of feeling of vast horizons of learning before me. And even though Aikido is something that you can go on learning and improving your whole life, it was hard to find the people. There are people on a you know, much higher level than I am, but I moved to Santa Fe, New Mexico. I was used to studying with senior masters in the New York area. And in New Mexico, I was at the you know, same level as the other teachers. And I just wanted the feeling of something fresher and new. So I, I, I met phenomenal Tai Chi master, and began studying with him, uh, took private lessons, took all his seminars, and became a Tai Chi teacher. And I found that Tai Chi is more more portable, don't have to go to a dojo, don't have to have a uniform. I can practice it anywhere I go around the world, the airport gate in my hotel room. Uh, So I've also created a synthesis of of Tai Chi and Aikido where I, I go to Aikido dojos and I teach Tai Chi principles to deepen your Aikido practice. And then I help Tai Chi players refine some of their practice with some Aikido methodology. Because so, my, my mind tends to work by creating new connections. Uh, the Da Vinci principle of connezione comes very naturally to me.
1: Yeah, what I thought was interesting and the reason I asked about Aikido is I've noticed it informs some of your books. So I, I like the way you bring in outside interests that
0: aren't necess- necessarily to do with business or the creative process and work them into your arguments. Well that's the most see the biggest creative thing that I've ever done is figure out how to get paid for juggling, how to get paid for doing aikido and tai chi and qigong, how to get paid for drinking wine, how to get paid for talking about my childhood hero Leonardo da Vinci. You get the idea? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, that's the real creativity is figure out how to take these things that I would be doing anyway share yeah. them with other people. And then they give me a big check. And that's worked out for the last 40 years. So <laughs>
1: yeah. oh, it's, it's important for our creative people to get paid too. So, so yeah. Michael,
0: where can people find more information about the art of connection or about you? Thank you. Well, the best place is to come to my website, michaelgelb.com. That's G-E-L-B, michaelgelb.com. We have a free newsletter and we'll send out all kinds of fun stuff. There's also on that website, lots of free articles. There's some really cool videos. I just gave a a keynote to 9,000 people up in Massachusetts on how to think like Leonardo. And that's going up on our website really soon. I also taught them all how to juggle. And that will be on the website really soon. So lots of fun stuff. There's also, if you hunt around on the website, you can find some videos of me teaching uh, qigong you can learn some really cool qigong practices to raise your baseline level of life energy and creative energy so michaelgelb.com and of course that's where you can click and get the books and all that good stuff it was great to talk to you today uh, michael my pleasure thank you so much
1: i hope you enjoyed this podcast episode if you did please leave a rating on the itunes store And if you want to accomplish more with your writing, please visit becomeawritertodaycom forward slash join and I'll send you a free email course. Thanks for listening.